Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. You can take net operating income, divide it by that cap rate, and determine, give or take a few percentages, what the property is going to sell for. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. There needed to be a resource on apartment syndication that not only talked about each aspect of the syndication process, but how to actually do each of the things and go into it in detail. And we thought, hey, why not make it free too? That's why we launched Syndication School, and Theo Hicks will go through a particular aspect of apartment syndication on today's episode and get into the details of how to do that particular thing. Enjoy this episode, and for more on apartment syndication and how to do things, go to apartmentsyndication.com or to learn more about the Apartment Syndication School go to syndicationschool.com so you can listen to all the previous episodes. Hi, best ever listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Syndication School series, a free resource focused on the how-tos of apartment syndication. As always, I am your host, Theo Hicks. Each week, we air two podcast episodes on Wednesday and Thursday that will focus on a specific aspect of the apartment syndication investment strategy. Usually there'll be two-part series, up to eight or ten-part series. I think the longest one we've done so far was eight parts. And for the majority of these series, we will be offering some sort of document or spreadsheet or resource for you to download for free, based off of what we discussed in that series. All the free documents for the previous Syndication School series, as well as the Syndication School episodes, can be found at syndicationschool.com. This episode is going to be part one of a quick two-part series, so just today and tomorrow, entitled How to Submit an Offer on a Syndicated Apartment Deal. So, as the title implies, by the end of this episode, you are going to learn how to begin the process of submitting your offer, 
which starts with creating a letter of intent or an LOI. Now, at this point, you should have already essentially completed the steps outlined in series 1 through 14. And this is series number 15. So in the previous series, number 14, it was eight parts. We discussed the process for underwriting a value apartment deal. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend that you listen to that first because we went into extreme detail on how you get to the point where you can determine whether or not to submit an offer as well as at what price. And as a refresher, after you've inputted all the information into your cash flow calculator, which we gave away a free simplified cash flow model, and you can download that at syndicationschool.com under series number 14. At the very end of that, one of the last steps was to determine an offer price. And that offer price is based on the return goals of you and your investors. So let's say, for example, your investors want an internal rate of return over five years of 14%. And let's say you are offering them an 8% preferred return. That means that you need to essentially, through an iterative process, so through trial and error, input purchase prices into the cash flow model until that five-year IRR is 14% or higher. And since you're offering an 8% preferred return, you're going to want a cash on cash return each year of at least 8%. So once you have that inputted, then you have essentially your best and highest offer. So once you get to that point, before submitting an offer, something that you're going to want to at least consider is how much the owner wants for the property. So usually, as I've mentioned before, on these larger apartment deals, we're talking like 20 units or below, or maybe even 50 units and below, there might be a price listed. So when you're underwriting, you can input that price initially and then see what the returns are based off of your assumptions. But if there isn't a price listed, there are a few ways to at least get an idea or a ballpark estimate of what the price is going to be. And two ways of doing this. One is, if you remember in the series about underwriting, one of the things you want to do while you're filling out the cash flow calculator and those first few steps when you're inputting the rent roll, inputting the T12, and you're reading through the offer memorandum, you're going to want to create a list of questions for the broker. So, hey, broker, why is the vacancy on the T12 10%, whereas on the offer memorandum it says it's 5%, for example? Or, hey, I see that the maintenance and repair expense for the previous 12 months is really high, I noticed that one month there was a really high expense for a boiler repair. What was that? Was it an issue that came up or was that something that was more of a CapEx expense, for example? But something else you might want to ask them is, what price do you expect this property to sell at? Or is there a whisper price that the owner wants for the property? Essentially, ask them in some form or fashion what the owner wants to sell the property for. They might say, well, it's going to be traded off of the market. So at that point, you can ask, okay, well, based off of your expertise, what cap rate do you expect this property to trade at? Typically, what they'll say is I expect to trade at a 5.5 based off of recent sales or whatever. Or you can kind of look at the OM and see sometimes they'll include a rent comps and a sales comp. And you can take a look at the price per unit of the comps that they used. And that'll give you an idea of maybe what the owner is expecting for a price per unit. But if they tell you what they expect the property to trade at from a cap rate perspective, then you can go to the OM and see what they listed as the current net operating income. You can take net operating income divided by that cap rate and determine, give or take a few percentages, 
what the property is going to sell for. Now, if you are underwriting the deal and you determine that your best offer would be $10 million, for example, and you ask the owner what the whisper price is and they say $20 million, then it's really up to you, but you might not want to really pursue it any further. It's not going to hurt to spend an LOI, but at the same time, it could potentially hurt you in the eyes of that broker because it essentially tell you that the property is going to sell for $20 million and you submit an offer for $10 million, the broker might not take you as serious. But at the end of the day, it's really up to you whether or not you want to submit a really low ball offer. But overall, once you're finished up with the ASAP underwriting process, if the results of your final calculator, after you've asked all of your questions to the broker, they've answered it, and you've seen the property in person, then everything I talked about in the ASAP process, and you've got an offer price that is close enough to the whisper price or the price based off the cap rate or based off the price per unit in the sales comps in the OM, and you're still able to meet or exceed your return goals, it's time to submit an offer. And the way that you do that depends on the process outlined in the offering memorandum if it's an on-market deal. Generally, on one of the first few pages in the OM, they will list out what the offer process is, and typically there'll be a call to offers date. So that's the last date that they're accepting offers. And they will ask you to submit a letter of intent, and they will most likely have a list of things at minimum that need to be included in that letter of intent. And then at that point, they might just decide who they're going to go with and do a call with that person to qualify them. And if the person's qualified, they'll accept that offer. If not, they'll go back to the next LOI. Or they might accept a handful of LOIs and ask you to come back and submit your best offer. And then after that, they might again just accept the best offer or they might have some sort of best and final call with those top offers to get a little more information on the buyer and their business plan to qualify them. And if it's off-market, you are just going to submit a letter of intent. So regardless of whether it's on-market or off-market or what the process is, at some point in the process, they're going to ask you for a letter of intent. So in this episode, I want to focus on how to create this letter of intent to maximize your chances of having your offer accepted. So letter of intent, or the LOI, is a non-binding letter. So it's not something that you're legally bound to. Essentially, it's something that represents your intent to purchase the property, and it defines what the terms of your offer are. So when you're submitting your LOI, as I kind of already mentioned, you want to come in with a strong offer that you'd be able to close at, but you don't want to over-offer to the point where you can't meet your return goals. But you also don't want to give your highest and best offer, because again, if they come back and ask for your highest and best offer and you submit the exact same offer, then that's going to be perceived differently. Also, you don't want to have to be forced to, again, over-offer because you gave your best offer and they rejected that and you're emotionally attached to the deal, for example, or something else you don't want to do. You don't want to get emotionally attached to the deal and sacrifice your underwriting to meet your return goals. You don't want to go back after they've rejected your first offer and say, okay, well, maybe I can reduce this expense or maybe I can increase the rent or maybe I can find some rent comps that allow me to increase my rental premium. Now the deal makes sense. You don't want to manipulate your spreadsheet. You want to essentially base everything off of how the property is currently operating and based off of the explanations I gave for setting your assumptions in the eight-step underwriting process series. So for the actual letter of intent, once you've kind of decided what offer you're going to submit, and again, keeping in mind it needs to be strong, 
but not over offer, not your highest and best offer, and not something that you know is going to be rejected, and not something that is a result of you manipulating your underwriting. Here are the things that you want to include in the letter of intent. And again, this is not necessarily at minimum because the minimum amount of information you need to include in your letter of intent will likely be outlined in that offer process section in the offer memorandum. But these are things that you're going to want to include to make sure that you are able to obtain all the information you need once you put the deal under contract. Number one is obvious is the purchase price. So the purchase price is going to be what you offer based off of, again, the goals of you and your investors. Next, you're going to want to include information on how you plan on financing the deal. So a specific example, you can say, I'm going to secure an 80% loan-to-value loan from Fannie Mae. And I know we haven't talked about loans yet on this podcast. So that'll likely be the next series that we do before we go into the due diligence process after you put a deal under contract. So it's information about your financing. Next, you wanted to set terms for your due diligence. So for example, one piece of information you want to include is when does the seller need to provide you with all of the documents that you need during the due diligence period. Generally, this is going to be defined as a certain number of days after the execution of the purchase and sale agreement. So if you're first, you submit an LOI. If it's accepted, then the seller will send you a formal contract, which is called a PSA purchase sale agreement. And ideally, that will have the terms you outlined in your letter of intent. So for example, you would say that we request the following documents within 14 days of a signed and executed purchase and sales agreement. Now, here are a list of things that you're going to want to list out in the LOI that you want. Because again, if you just say, I want all of your historical documents, all of your historical financial documents and other reports that you have, that's pretty vague and you want to write out explicitly what you want. So I'm just going to just run through these things. And these are things you're going to want to include in your LOI. So you're going to want the past three years of financials, preferably in Excel format. You're going to want a current rent roll, preferably in Excel. You're going to want copies of all the current leases. You're going to want a copy of a blank lease agreement that they have. You're going to ask for copies of the current and past three years tax assessment and bills. You're going to ask for a current insurance binder or policy for the property, including any casualty and liability and insurance loss runs for the past few years. Anytime they file a claim, you want to know about that as well. You're going to want a list of the salaries and wages for all of the employees that work at the property. You're going to want copies of all maintenance records and warranties. You're going to want a trailing 12-month non-operating below the line expenses. So these are the non-operating expenses like debt service or asset management fees or anything else that was not included on the initial T12 that you received. You're going to want a 12-month capital improvement budget. So if any CapEx projects they've implemented the property over the past 12 months, you're going to want to know what those are and not the costs. You're going to want complete copies of all records, instruments, contracts, and agreements for the property. So all those contract service line items. You're going to ask the seller to provide you with a list of all personal property that you will receive at closing. You're going to want an updated survey. You're going to want a current title policy. You're going to want a detailed list of all capital improvements along with the costs made to the property over the past three years. You're going to want a copy of any plans and specifications related to any planned or unfinished interior and or exterior improvements to the property. You're going to want copies of all service contracts. You're going to want copies of the past three years utility bills. 
You're going to want a full general ledger, so not just the cash account. And you're going to want bank deposit statements for the past year, ideally in Excel. You're going to schedule of any write-offs over the previous 12 months, as well as an explanation of their current write-off policy, so their bad debt policy. You're going to want to ask for an age receivable report, including details by each resident. You're going to want the 12-month capital improvement budget, so what they plan on doing if they held on the property for the next 12 months, if they actually have that. You're going to want a historical occupancy report for the past 12 months. You're going to ask for the historical environmental reports. You're going to ask for a list of their personal property at the property. And you're going to ask for a breakdown of the SBS income. And finally, you're going to ask for any other non-confidential documents that specifically say other non-confidential documents as buyer may reasonably require, which are in seller's or its property manager's possession. So there's a lot of things to request. I didn't want to spend too much time going through each of those individual items that you're requesting. But overall, the two reasons why you're requesting these is number one, it's going to be more detailed information that you can use to either confirm or adjust all of those assumptions you made during the underwriting process. And secondarily, you're going to want to have some information. So when you're performing due diligence, you're going to get all these reports from various vendors and your property management company. And you're going to want a copy of those same reports that the seller has over the previous 12 months to three years for comparison purposes. You're also going to want to state in this section that the seller should provide you with access to the property for your physical inspections. Because again, you're going to need that during the due diligence period. And again, I'm going to go into a lot more detail on what some of these things mean. Not in the next series, but two series from now when we go over how to perform due diligence on a deal once you have it under contract. The next section of the LOI will lay out the closing information. Essentially, when is the closing date? Uh, generally, for these apartment deals, the closing date is 60 to 90 days after the execution of the purchase and sale agreement. You're also going to want to include in there when the purchase and sale agreement should be executed by. So typically, you will say that your letter of intent is valid for a certain number of days. And if you don't have a signed PSA after three days or five days or a week or whatever, then the LOI is no longer valid. Lastly, you're going to want to include any information about your ability to extend the closing date. So will you have the ability to extend the closing date? And if you do, how many extensions do you want? And in order to get an extension, is it going to be free or are you going to provide additional earnest money? So for example, you could say that the closing date is going to be 60 days after the execution of the purchase sale agreement and that you want two 30-day extensions. If you extend one time, then you will do a additional Let's say, for example, the earnest deposit is a million dollars. Then you can say that to the extent of 30 days, I will put down an additional $400,000. That will be non-refundable. And if I need to extend it a second time, I will put down an additional $600,000. That's non-refundable. And again, this is an example. These numbers are going to be completely flexible and negotiable based off of the actual purchase price. Right? If the purchase price is $400,000, and you're not going to be putting down a non-refundable deposit of $400,000. The next section is going to be the earnest money. So essentially, this is going to be a down payment that you put up at the execution of the purchase and sales agreement to show your intention and ability to close. So you want to outline what that earnest deposit amount will be, which is, again, completely up to you. But generally, it's around 1% to 2% of the purchase price. 
And then also the terms of the earnest deposit. That is, is it going to be refundable or non-refundable? With the non-refundable earnest deposit making your offer stronger compared to a refundable. For example, you can say that the earnest deposit will be due at the execution of the purchase and sale agreement. Or that you may offer a portion of the earnest deposit at the execution of the purchase and sale agreement. And then another portion of the earnest deposit once you've completed the inspection period. And then again, you might also want to talk about the extra earnest deposits if you are requesting an extension. You could also say that it's non-refundable regardless, or you can say that it's non-refundable subject to certain things like a clean environmental survey or a clean title or financing contingency or things like that. Next section is going to be information about the title and survey. So pretty simple. Who's going to pay for the title insurance, the seller or the buyer, and who is going to pay for the new survey or recertification of an existing survey? Next is a closing cost. So we're going to outline who pays for the closing cost, the buyer or the seller. So things like broker commissions, cost to clear the title, any escrow fees to the title company, the cost for recording the deed, any attorney fees, who pays for that. Next is going to be commission. So what parties are involved in the deal that will receive a commission? Typically, it's just going to be the broker that's representing the seller. So a list of who is going to receive the commission and who pays that. Typically, the seller is one that pays these commissions. And a few other things that you can include in the LOI. You can mention that you're allowed to assign the contract to a single purpose entity. For example, most likely you're going to buy the property using an LLC. So if you submit your LOI under your name and you don't have the ABC property LLC created yet, then you're going to want to be able to have the ability to assign the contract to your LLC. Also, you're going to stipulate that the seller needs to continue normal operations and repairs and maintenance during the contract. Another thing you can ask for is all vacant units need to be make ready at the time of closing. You can also request that the buyer and seller should work to complete the purchase and sales agreement within, again, a certain number of days after executing the LOI, so a week, two weeks, whatever. And then you can also, something else we want to include is once the PSA is executed, the seller is not allowed to solicit for, receive, or accept any offers. Now, once you've kind of created your LOI, or at least have an idea of the terms, make sure you talk with either a real estate broker or your property management company to learn about what the generally accepted terms are in your current market. So do you need to have an unrefundable earnest deposit to even have a chance of winning a deal? What should the earnest deposit amount be? How long should you request the due diligence process to be? Things like that. And then just to reiterate what I said earlier to kind of conclude this episode about my final words, letter of intent, the terms should be strong and you should be able to have the ability to close. So if your LOI is accepted, you should be excited to close at those terms, which means you don't want to overoffer. You don't want to provide your highest and best offer yet. You don't want to submit an offer that you know is going to be rejected and you don't want to get emotionally attached to a deal and sacrifice your underwriting to fulfill that emotional attachment to the deal. And finally, a note on the refundable versus non-refundable, besides talking to your management company and or broker, if you are very confident in your underwriting and you know it's conservative and you know the market really well, then feel free to submit a non-refundable earnest deposit. If you don't know the market very well, if you're maybe newer and aren't 100% confident in your underwriting, it might not be the best idea to go non-refundable. 
So that concludes this episode. What I'm going to do is I will include a sample letter of intent template based off of the information I kind of outlined in this episode, what to include in there. So you can essentially use that and essentially change the numbers, change the offer price, change the earnest deposit amount. If you want to, you can change the due diligence inspection periods and fundable versus non-refundable for earnest deposit. But that'll be a good starting point for your letter of intent. Now, in next episode, so you've got your letter of intent created, and then you submit the letter of intent. So what happens next? That's what we're going to discuss in the next episode. Until then, I recommend going back through and listening to the other syndication school series about the how-tos of apartment syndications, if you haven't done so already, as well as to download that free letter of intent template, as well as the other free documents we've got for the syndication school series. All that can be found at syndicationschool.com. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you tomorrow. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out.